0: So there was this town, and in this town, there were two men. One of them was very wealthy, and uh, you knew that they were wealthy because they had lots of of flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. That was kind of how you measured wealth this time. His flocks and his herds were huge, and he was a wealthy man. Uh, There was also a poor man, a very poor man, who had but one ewe lamb, and that lamb Uh, He cherished that lamb. It drank from his cup. It ate at his table. It slept in his arms. He loved it like a daughter. Well, this rich man, uh, as would often happen, had some visitors that were coming to see him, and he wanted to be hospitable to them and and, and throw a feast for them. Uh, But instead of taking from his own flock or his own herd to feed for this guest, Instead, he took the one ewe lamb that the poor man had and he killed it and he prepared it and fed it to his guest. Well, King David, who's listening to this story be told, he is enraged, right? He's he's furious and he's like, that... and it's a, it's a righteous anger, right? At the injustice and the lack of compassion. And he says, this man, this man needs, to, I mean... He's going to be in trouble. This is terrible. There's no compassion. He he needs to die. Uh, and then and then after he dies, he needs to pay back four times what he's what he's taken from this poor man. And then Nathan, the prophet Nathan, who is telling the story, looks at David and says, You are the man. Let's pray together. Lord be our teacher this morning. Thank you for your word in which we trust you are still speaking even today. Open our hearts to hear from you and fill us with your power that as we go into this world, as we go into our work and our homes and our neighborhoods, we would do so empowered by your spirit to live lives that are beautiful and are powerful and that look more and more like you, our Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen. So that was uh, the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 12, loosely retold, but accurately retold. Uh, And I think think one of the most compelling things to me about Scripture uh, is the authenticity of the characters that we find there. And we're spending some time this summer looking at a number of these different characters, uh, in particular from the Old Testament, um, trusting that as we encounter their stories, as we hear their stories, Uh, That their stories have something to say to us, right? Um, The the thing that I love about the characters we find in Scripture is that they're very real, they're very raw, and they're very broken. Um, And and I it it it, it it seems to me to authenticate Scripture that much more, right? That they're not the people that are writing Scripture are not trying to make themselves look better. The disciples writing the Gospels don't make the disciples look very good. (laughs) The disciples are kind of bumbling fools, never quite getting it. Um, Jesus is the one who comes out looking really good in the Gospels, which is the point of it all. Uh, And David is another character like that. He is, uh, he's an interesting character and we know a lot about David. In fact, uh, we know more about David than almost any other character in scripture from his youth, his young days, tending uh, as a shepherd Uh, All the way through his adolescence, to growing up, to becoming a king, to eventually his death. We know a lot about David's life. We also know a lot about David's internal life through the Psalms. David left us with an incredible book of his prayers and journals and poems in the Psalms. We know a lot about David. Um, But David is not, even though he's described as being a man after God's own heart, he's not necessarily someone to model your life after. If you read the scope of David's life, um, he's not for us the ultimate example, right? No character, no human uh, in Scripture is, save the human who is also divine, Jesus. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a wonderful way of talking about, uh, talking about David and, and our, the danger, perhaps, in uh, treating him as a model for our life. He says it this way. As an instance of humanity in himself, as a model or as an example, uh, he isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but it's in his experience of and his witness to God. Hear this. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And that's where David can become an example to us. As we see our own lives through his lens and recognize that every event, every moment of our lives, whether glorious or broken, every event has the potential to be a confrontation with God. If we will have eyes to see it and ears to hear that. Most of you are probably familiar with the story leading up to the story within the story that I told. Uh, In 2 Samuel 11, uh, we have the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Um, I'll try to briefly summarize it here. But David, at this point, is a very successful king in Israel. Everything's going well. The borders are expanding. There's peace within the kingdom. Life is flourishing and good. And we have a little glimpse of this at the very beginning of the chapter where it says, David woke up in the afternoon, (laughs) right? (laughs) Things are going all right for David. Didn't wake up in the morning. He woke up in the afternoon, and he he walks out on his balcony. He looks down, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath at a balcony below him, Uh, an innocent glance that, over the course of the next chapter, we see get twisted and turned into as as sin does, as our our sin does, right? This innocent glance that becomes more and more devious, more and more harmful, um, until eventually it ends up with um, Bathsheba, David committing adultery. Um, uh, I mean, the Bible doesn't use this word, but knowing from his, how powerful he was, right? Most likely raping her, uh, impregnating her, uh, then conspiring to kill her husband, who is one of his most loyal soldiers out in the field. Uh, this is the Bible. This is the story of the man after God's own heart. So, incredible devastation of sin that just kind of starts here and just goes down, 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 down. But then, at the end of chapter 11, it seems like, okay, well, that was awkward, but now David, uh, Bathsheba's come to the palace. she has been taken in as one of David's wives, and he's going to continue on as king. And then... Nathan shows up, and he just tells a story, right? And I love that because I think the power of a story well told is, uh, is so illustrated here. And it actually becomes for us, I think, an example of how we engage with the story of these characters that we find in Scripture. Because there's one way uh, to simply read this as this historical book with these interesting characters, right? Uh, to read these stories, um, the, 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 the stories of the people, the, the cloud of witnesses, right? This is, we're, we're taking this title from uh, the book of Hebrews where uh, there's this great cloud of witnesses, people that have gone before, and we, we read their stories in the scriptures. But it's when we find ourselves in their stories, that's when God, that's when it has the chance to become a confrontation, an encounter with the living God. And that's what happens with poor David, Right? Nathan tells this story and he is justly angry at the the injustice that he sees in this story. And he, I mean, it it is funny, his response, because he's so flustered and so full of of righteous indignation and the lack of compassion on this poor, I mean, David grew up a shepherd, right? So here, like, Nathan knew how to get the heartstrings, right? He's like, here's a shepherd and he has one lamb and it's taken from him. And, And David's like, uh, he should. We should kill him. And then after we've killed him, he needs to pay back four times what he took. Right? Like that's the order. He's just. He's mad. And Nathan. It, it sets up the most powerful one-liner in all of Scripture. You are the man. You are the woman. And you can just imagine David's kind of melting reaction as his world is turned upside down by that one line, that this isn't some sort of story out there that's happening, fictitious or not, that it's him. He's the one who's taken what was not his to take, who has ignored all the good, rich blessings in his life, who has sinned against God. I was... I was thinking that this, you know, David's world was flipped upside down by this one line. And then I thought, no, no, actually, David's world was already upside down. And what Nathan did is he flipped it right side up. He held up a mirror to, to David and said, this is, this is you. This is reality. This is the reality of your sin and what it's done. Uh, and the interesting thing, too, is how both Nathan and David understand this primarily as a sin against God. One of the things that... Um, as, as Nathan goes on and continues to talk to David and continues to um, kind of expand how he's implicated in this story, uh, both he and David recognize that the primary sin that has taken place here is a sin against God. Uh, and we can we can read that, and, and it, it can strike us as odd and a little bit off-putting, because we think, what about Uriah and Bathsheba? It was a little bit of a sin against them since he's dead and She's now with child and and has been, you know, made a widow. Um, But I think what, it's not to lessen the impact that this sin had on Uriah and David, but it's to understand this, that fundamentally, all of our sin, no matter who is is hurt or impacted by it, or whether we think that no one is, that it's just a secret little sin that nobody knows about, fundamentally, that is sin against God. That the, the, the right orientation to God is what is necessary in order to have a right orientation to each other. So when we read in, in Psalm 51, which is the, the prayer, the psalm, the poem that David writes right after this encounter. When we read, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That's not to say that he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. That's pretty obvious that they're impacted significantly by this. But that's to say that fundamentally, at the, at the, at the core of this, is david 's relationship with god that 's what that 's what Eugene Peterson saying about his life right that that every one of these moments these uh, these from from glorious conquests that he did to to this the depth of this betrayal and adultery and murder um, primarily it 's about the presence of God in his life and an encounter with God and a choice to ignore all the blessings that God has done right after uh, Right after Nathan says, you are the man, he spends three verses describing to David all of the blessings that God has given him. He, he reminds David of all that he's been given in his kingdom, that, that everything that David has as king, um, everything he has at his disposal, all his resources, all of those he's received as a gift from God. And that primarily what, what went wrong, <laughs> where, where that innocent glance turned to sin was David forgetting about the blessings in his own life, forgetting that everything he has, he's not earned. It's been a gift from God. That Bathsheba is not his to take, right? But she has been made in the image of God, and that her covenant of marriage with Uriah is something that is to be protected rather than broken. And so David responds after Nathan describes all of these blessings, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, you are the man. David reflects, repents, and says, yes, yes, I am that man. And then immediately after that, Nathan, the prophet, the voice of God in David's life, says, you are forgiven. The Lord has taken away your sin. That's good news, that that's where the story goes, so quickly. But also, uh, there is a seriousness and a weight to David's sin that stays with him for the rest of his life. There's kind of a turning point here in David's life, where uh, this you, you sense the the kind of the brokenheartedness of David the rest of his life, um, lust and power and violence, visit David's household, uh, I don't know if I can say frequently, but continue to visit his household uh, after this for for years to come, uh, with infighting with his family and all kinds of problems. And that's not to say that this is karma, that David's getting what he deserves, uh, but that's to say, and Nathan highlights this in his response to David, that his sin is serious and has consequences, but that God also has forgiven him and has taken away his sin. I, uh, the, the more I read this passage, the more I really love Nathan. He's a pretty incredible character. And if you think about the courage that it took for him to come to the king and to say these things to the king, to confront the most powerful man in the country with this accusation, um, that, that took some courage. But but Nathan makes a few appearances in David's life, and you get a sense that there's actually a bit of a relationship there, right? There's some trust. David seeks him out for some advice on whether he should build the temple, and Nathan prays about it. Initially, he's like, yeah, do it, and then he prays about it. He's like, David, you need to hear from the Lord. It's not for you to build the temple. It's going to be for your son, Solomon. So there's some trust there, but still, the courage that it took. And I think as I read this encounter between Nathan and David, I think one of my hopes is that we can see ourselves in both characters. Primarily in David, because I think this, this encounter describes uh, the truth about all of us and our own sin. And the, ne- the necessity that we have to see it clearly, to see it honestly in front of us. And also the necessity we have of hearing God's grace, God's forgiveness in our lives, And we need Nathans. We need Nathans who can do that for us, who can help us see reality clearly, because we can't, none of us sees ourselves clearly, right? It's that whole idea that you never have actually seen yourself, right? You've looked in a mirror and you just, you see things flipped. but None of us can see ourselves accurately, and we need each other to do that. We need Nathans in our lives. But we also need Nathans who can speak to us the good news, who can speak to us of God's grace and his forgiveness. This is uh, one of the reasons why I love the doctrine of the universal priesthood of all believers. Uh, That that though I have pastor as kind of my job title, the vocation of pastor is one that we all share with each other. And uh, and in in Nathan and David's interaction, I think we see a glimpse of, of a way that that can work. Um, and in a vision of one of the ways that we are that to each other is by holding up a mirror of reality in front of each other, and, uh, but by also speaking of God's grace and God's love to each other. We need to hear that. And seeing that every sin, every instance of brokenness in our lives, is the opportunity for an encounter, or as Eugene Peterson says, a confrontation with God. That is good news. Because the God who confronts us in our sin is the one who gave himself to forgive our sin. This is the hope. Uh, this story between Nathan and David is, uh, is tragic on, on many levels. But there's a beauty to it. Uh, And the beauty continues on because if we turn to Matthew chapter 1, the very first book of the New Testament, it opens with a genealogy. It opens with the the history of Jesus' ancestors. And we get to verse 5, and it says that Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We're going to hear about her in a little bit. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. This twisted, sinful story of lust and adultery and murder and conspiracy is part of God's redemptive story of the whole world, right? The genealogy goes on and talks, finally gets to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, about whom Peter says, years later, you are the Christ. And there's kind of this cool parallel here between Peter's proclamation about Jesus being you are the Christ and Nathan's proclamation about David, you are the man. And that, that uh, journey from you are the man to you are the Christ is one that I hope we cover every Sunday when we gather that we look at ourselves a little more honestly a little more openly and are able to say along with David oh I am the man I am that man the things that bother me that i see in the world right the, the things that bother me about other people like i recognize like i that sin is present in my life i am that man and we confess right that's one of the great uh, practices that we have when we're faced with this reality. We confess that it's true. But that we leave joining Peter and looking at Christ and being in awe of him and saying, you are the Christ. I may be the man, but you are the Christ. And because Jesus is the Christ, we have the promise of the forgiveness of our sin. We have the promise of hope. And we have the promise that we serve a God who can take this the mess of 2 Samuel 11. Right, all that sin and twistedness, it can use it as part of how he redeems the whole world through Christ. That the mess of our lives and the sin in our lives is not unredeemable. This is one of the great bits of good news about the story of David. I want to wrap up by leading us in a prayer that was David's prayer, Psalm 51. This is one of those psalms that has a little uh, subtitle underneath it, right, that gives you the context. And the context is after Nathan the prophet. It's not even, it's not after uh, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's not after he uh, killed Uriah, Um, but it was after Nathan the prophet came to him and told him a story and said, you are the David prays this. And so as we come to the table this morning, let's let these words be our prayer, our preparation. Generous in love. Oh God, give me grace. Huge in mercy. Wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one that I violated and you've seen it all. You have seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time. I've been in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. So enter me then and conceive a new and true life in me. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me in to foot-tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes, but give me a clean bill of health. Oh God, make a fresh start in me. Shape in me a Genesis week out of the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from a gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Then give me a job teaching rebels your ways so that the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I will sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I will let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. and you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all the bulls they can heave onto your altar. Lord, as we come to your table of both truth and grace this morning, we acknowledge and we confess our sin before you. We acknowledge its seriousness. That you say it, the wages of sin is death, that that's what we deserve. And yet, God, you delight in giving life where death should be. Out of that mess, in 2 Samuel 11, generations later, Jesus, God's chosen one, God in the flesh, sat with his friends around a table. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then later, after supper, he took the cup. and He said, this cup... It's the new covenant. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. It represents my blood. Poured out for you. Whenever we take this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his saving death. His death that brings life out of our own death. We do it until he comes again.